Jim, I appreciate that prayer. This is a special weekend. As I uh, reflect about the number of people who have uh, served in the military and have been maimed and given their lives so that we could live in freedom, I often ask myself, why is it that Christians, while we uh, stole those people and remember those people who died in wars, and we should, uh, and we ourselves, if called upon, would go to war and die for our country. Why we, these same people, uh, are afraid to die for Christ? I've heard people say to me, I don't think I could die for Christ. Well, you die for your country. You love America more than you love Christ. And why is it that some of us who would be willing to send our kids to war in harm's way, Encourage our kids not to go to the mission field because it's too dangerous. See, these are the, the contradictions that Christians have. And when we get into the book of Revelation, those Christians are in the same boat. They're having to choose between love of their nation, their empire, that's calling them to die, calling them to give allegiance to their nation, and... The church, Jesus Christ, which is calling them to give allegiance to him and his cause. And these Christians are now having to make choices. And so let's take our Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 18. And we're going to see uh, what the scripture has to say about this and sundry items. Very interesting. Because you have to be very careful when patriotism uh, outstrips your allegiance to Christ. <clears throat> because one thing we know, your nation can go astray and makes, makes many bad choices. Doesn't it? Sometimes we get in wars we shouldn't get involved in. And our kids die in those wars. But Christ will never lead you astray. He will always be true. If you would die for the cause of Christ, you die for Christ himself. You are dying for a worthy cause of somebody who is always right in his decisions and never leads you astray. So what's happened here in Revelation is that in chapter 17, which we covered last week, John, in his vision, sees a picture of Rome as a prostitute that is engaging in illicit relationships with all of her people by drawing them, tempting them, into practicing idolatry. And as a result, the scripture calls this idolatry a form of adultery. Spiritual adultery is when you have a relationship with other gods rather than the one true and living God. And she is calling her people, the kings, and even Christians, to give their allegiance to the nation uh, no matter what. And to uh, worship the gods of Rome. And... In order to survive in that empire, that's what you had to do in order to survive. You had to do what the government asked you to do. And people would worship these other gods and give their allegiance to Caesar as divine in order to receive benefits, in order to get in on the, uh, uh, the, the good positive results. And some Christians are compromising, and they are saying, well, it wouldn't matter if I just sort of make a little 
libation to Caesar, and our hearts we really don't believe this, but you know, you have to live, right? You have to have a job. If we don't do this, we'll lose our jobs. And so they would do that. They would give the nod. They would give the pinch of incense. And God says, you have now committed spiritual adultery. You can't serve two gods. You can only serve one or the other. And so as a result, God says in chapter 17, Rome is going to be judged because she has led a nation or her empire into idolatry. And if you're a so-called Christian church member and you are participating in those things, you will be judged with the empire. So it's a very uh, uh, heavy chapter. Now in chapter 18, John speaks of the fall of Rome in terms of an economic collapse, an economic fall. And he hears four voices, and here's how we're going to divide the chapter. John, in his vision, hears four voices. In verses 1 through 3, he hears the voice of condemnation, the voice of condemnation. In verses 4 through 8, he hears the voice of separation, calling the church to separate from the empire. Verses 9 through 19, he hears the voice of lamentation. And then in verses 20 through 24, he hears the voice of celebration. Four voices. So let's look first of all at the voice of condemnation. Look at verse 1. And after these things, he said, I saw in my vision another angel coming down from heaven. This is an angel who's been in the presence of God, having great authority, which means authority that's been given to it. And the earth was illuminated with his glory. This is how we know that he's been in the presence of God. The glory of God shines over top of this angel and all around this angel. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen. Is fallen. Emphasizes it twice. Says fallen, fallen for emphasis. This is a major announcement here. Now look at the extent of her fall. And has become. How far has she fallen? She has become a dwelling place, meaning a home of demons, a haunt or a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Now what in the world is he describing here? He says... Rome has fallen, and guess what? When you walk through Rome, you don't see any people. It's become a haunt, a a home, a place where uh, the vultures are circling all over. You know what vultures do when they circle about? They're hunting for dead flesh, rotten flesh. And this is describing a city that's been ransacked and has been deserted by human beings and it's a picture of isolation, and Rome has been laid to waste. So he says Rome has fallen. This is a proclamation uh, that a person would make uh, uh, when a war is over. And this is describing who lost the war. In this case, Rome. Rome has fallen, it's fallen, it's desolate, it lies in ruins, it lies in waste. It's a place where there are more birds and animals in it than people. I want you to think out of think of a bombed out city. Think of London during World War II. I want you to think of Joplin, Missouri, <clears throat> in the recent tornado. You see what that section of the city looks like that was hit by the tornado? There are more animals walking around than there were people. 
after that thing. I want you to imagine a city the size of Rome, one million strong, that has been laid to waste by an invasion, and it's been cut down to the size of 30,000 people. If you had a nuclear bomb hit a city of one million, you'd probably still have more than 30,000 people alive. Because there'd be survivors, wouldn't there? Not everybody in Nagasaki was wiped out in Hiroshima. There were thousands that were left. When Rome was ransacked by the barbarians, that city of one million was reduced to 30,000 overnight. And that's what he's describing. He's describing a city that has been laid to waste by an invasion. Now look at the reason for Rome's fall. Why has this happened? Look what he says in verse 3. For all the nations, here's the reason, all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Everyone has been uh, sucked in by her temptations, and they've drunk from that cup, which they thought was a cup of pleasure, but he calls it a cup of wrath. This is what's bringing her downfall. And look at the second reason. The kings of the earth, these are the client kings that represent her all around the Mediterranean world. They have committed fornication with her. They have been involved in idolatry and declared Caesar to be divine in exchange for political power. The kings. See, what happens if Herod doesn't do that? He's out of office, isn't he? What happens if King Agrippa doesn't say Caesar is Lord? What happens to him? He's out of office. So they do it in exchange for political power. And... She has sucked all these people into this idolatry. Now look at the end of verse 3. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So they have basically uh, given into the idolatry, and as a result, they've done it in exchange for benefits. So what we have here is we have an exchange taking place, an exchange for wealth, power, favor. In exchange for that, the kings, the merchants, the people of the earth uh, practice her idolatry and basically say Caesar is Lord, and there is judgment as a result of that. That's why Rome is going to fall. So that's the voice of condemnation. <clears throat> he acts like it's already happened. These words are nearly like it's happened already. And it has in his vision. In his vision, he sees it as a past event, but it's still in the future as far as John's concerned. Now look at the voice of separation. Look at verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven. So here's another divine voice representing God. Saying, Come out of her, my people. So here is a voice representing God, speaking to God's people, and God says to his people, Come out of Rome. Because Rome's going to what? It's going to fall. It's going to be judged. Do you want to be judged with it? You need to get out of Rome. Physically? No, you can't get out of Rome physically. Any more than anybody can get out of their country physically. I'm not telling all the Christians to leave Rome, but he's saying, don't cast your lot with Rome. Get out of Rome morally. Get out of Rome spiritually. Don't uh, give your allegiance to Caesar. Don't compromise. Don't go along with Rome. Hey, this is how this book started off. Don't you remember? He said to the seven churches of Asia Minor, what did he tell them to do? Don't give in. Don't give in. Don't give in. Don't give in. Instead, overcome. 
Overcome, overcome. You may have to die for your faith, but don't practice the practices of Rome. This is all he's doing. He's saying, get out of that mindset. Stay faithful. And if you have compromised with Rome, repent. That's what he says to the churches. This is the same message that he's preached. And I want to show you this. This is a very common message in the Bible. I want you to look at one example. I want you to look over at 2 Corinthians. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You see this exact same message. Come out of her. And when you get to chapter 6, look at verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. And here's Paul writing to the Corinthians. Now, you know what the Corinthian church was like. What were they involved in? Were they involved in idolatry? Yes. Were they eating at the table of demons? Yes. Were they eating at the Lord's table? Yes. They were doing both? Yes. Remember he said you can't eat at the table of demons and the table of the Lord. And so look what his admonition was to the Corinthians in chapter 6. The second Corinthians 6. <coughs> oh Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open, but you have not uh, but you're not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children. You also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light and dark? What concord has Christ with Biel? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And God says, I will dwell in them and I'll walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's who he's speaking to over in Revelation. My people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. That's what he means by coming out. Don't practice that idolatry. And I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So here we see that the message that John is writing to the seven churches of Asia Minor is nothing new. It's exactly the same message that Paul wrote to the Corinthians who are also practicing idolatry. Now, we don't think that we practice idolatry, but we do practice idolatry. This is a universal plea. It involves universal principles that we need to follow. And it simply says, don't play by the world's rules. Because the world wants you to play by those rules, and when you go to work, your boss says, well, we don't have to tell them the whole truth about this product of ours, do we? And you say, well, I don't think I should do that. And the boss looks at you like this. And you know what that means. You want a job? So what do you do? You compromise. Instead of being true to Christ, you give in and you play by the world's rules in order to keep your job, in order to retain favors, in order to get the raise because, hey, you've been faithful to the, job, to the, to the boss and he's going to take care of you. So the Christians are told to come out of that system. Don't practice by the world's rules. And we'll see how this applies uh, more directly in a moment. Now look at the purpose for abandoning Rome. Let's go back to chapter 18. Okay? 
Look what he says. Look at verse 4. Come out of her, my people. Here's the reason. Lest you share in her sins. You end up being just like they are. And then the end of verse 4. Lest you receive her plagues. In other words, if you act like Rome, you will be treated like Rome. You will be judged. God will send judgment upon you and you will uh, end up uh, being judged in the end. Or to put it another way, if you lie down with dogs, what? Yeah, you'll wake up with fleas. Now we all know that, so we like that better than we like the verse in the Bible. But what it's saying is if you partake of her pleasures, if you trade your principles for her favor, then in the end you're going to get her punishment. Because you're no different than the world. You call yourself a Christian, but you're no different than the world. You call yourself the church, but you're no different than the world. So he says we need to separate from that. So this is a voice of separation. So when a church, or even Christians, start acting like the world, we are in real danger. Now, churches can do this. Christian organizations can do this. Individuals can do this. Look, we all know about the good old boy system, don't we? Do I have to tell you what the good old boy system is? Now, I think you know what the good old boy system is. I see it in, in education. We have to hire a professor, so guess who we hire? The best qualified? Do we put an ad in Christianity Today and all the, the educational journals in order to search for the best, or what do we do? We give somebody a job that's our, our friend. Now, that's human nature. It's not like it's inherently evil in the sense that, ah, I'm going to do something really evil now. <laughs> no, this is something that can be justified. Well, that's how the world operates. See? Cutting corners, finagling, shading the truth. Take Enron, for example, or one of those other major corporations. You know what they were doing. Some of those guys were Christians that were running those organizations. But boy, did they finagle the fact. Or you run a business, maybe a publicly held business, and you say, oh, we have to make sure that our investors, our stockholders, get dividends and make profits. That's what we're, we work for the stockholders. Well, that's true, but you still should be honest, shouldn't you? Your stockholders shouldn't get a profit off of something that wasn't earned honestly. So if you cheat and you shade the truth and you cut corners and they make a bundle off of that, someone suffered because of that. And Christians do that in business. So this is what John is saying. He's saying that you're operating no differently than Rome operates. In response for paying tribute to Caesar and giving your allegiance to Rome, you're going to receive favors and that's the same way that Christians do business anyway. He says stop doing that. So well, if I do that, I wouldn't be able to make a living. Well, you will live by kingdom principles. If you seek first the kingdom of God, then what happens? All what? Oh no, God's going to let you hang out there, you know, to dry. No, it says 
He will take care of your needs. Now just think of, I uh, shouldn't say this since it's going to go out on the video, but just think of Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A has a principle that we're going to give the Lord one day. Are they going bankrupt? They try to get a good product? So there's an example of how you live and run a business like a Christian. And then there's ways that you run them like the world. <coughs> Abandon the world. Can you trust God? If you can trust Him for salvation for eternity, can you trust Him for a couple years for food on the table? You can't trust Him. If you can trust Him for eternity, can't you trust Him for a few temporal things? You see how illogical we are? And this is what John is saying to this church. He, these seven churches, and to us. He says, hey, withdraw from that kind of mindset. Now, they were literally involved in idolatry, and so are we when we put things above God and our own welfare above God. It's just a different form of idolatry. Now, look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. For her sins, so you're going to receive her plagues because her sins, verse 5, have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. It's gotten God's attention. It's not going unnoticed. He's going to do something about this. And if you cast your lot with her, he's going to do something about what you're doing because your sins have got his attention as well. So, he gives the command, come out to her. That's command number one. Now look at the second command. Verse six. Render to her just as she rendered to you. Now, we don't know who... Uh, is speaking here. We don't know if this is an angel that is speaking to God. We just don't know who the subject is, the object is. But here's what he says. <clears throat> this angel may be talking to God. This may be John speaking. We just don't know at this point. But here's what it says. Render to Rome just as she has rendered to you. In other words, give her what she deserves. Give her justice. Everybody wants justice? Give her an eye for an eye. Give her exactly what she deserves. And then he says this in verse 8. Repay her double according to her works. She's been doubly bad. Pay her back double. Make her punishment severe. Pay her back double. Rome has fallen. Fallen. Rome has fallen once. Rome's fallen twice. Double payback. Maybe that's why he says Rome has fallen has fallen. She's been doubly bad. She'll be doubly fallen. And then he says, in the cup which she mixed, which she has mixed, mix double for her. Now last week we saw that she, that Rome was sitting on a beast and held a big cup called a cup of filthiness and abomination. Who She was drunk on the blood of the saints. She has a cup, and guess what she's done? She's killed, and the cup's filled with blood. And she's killed people, and she's who've tried to remain faithful to the Lord, and she's slaughtered those people, and now guess what he says to do to her? And the cup which she mixed, mixed double for her. Give her what she deserves. So we see uh, this call to separate because Rome's going to be judged. Look at verse 7. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously. Notice that word phrase in the measure. In proportion to the way she glorified herself and lived luxuriously in the same measure give her torment 
and suffer and sorrow. So, uh, to what measure did Rome boast? To what measure did Rome live luxuriously? And the answer is, to the hilt. Well, guess what you need to do? To the hilt, give her torment and sorrow. And so this is basically what he is saying. She thought she was self-sufficient. Because she says in the middle of verse 7, in her heart, I sit as a queen. How's that for a boast? Rome says, I sit as a queen. I'm no widow. I will not see sorrow. Oh yeah? Rome would invade nations and they would turn women into widows. They would go into a nation and that nation had to defend itself. Those young men would die and leaving widows in that nation that was invited. Rome said, I'm a queen. I'm, not gonna, I'm no widow. I'm not going to suffer. Guess what? Rome will have more widows than any other city on earth up until that time when God decides to send an army in to invade them. This is the arrogance that Rome has. She's self-satisfied. She's self-sufficient. Uh, she exalts herself on high. So here's the result. Verse 8. Therefore, her plagues will come. Watch this. Her plagues will come in one day. Death and mourning and famine. These are all the results of war. The results of war are death, mourning, famine. And it says it's all going to happen in one day. Now what does that mean in one day? When she falls, it's going to happen in one day. What do you think that means? Fast? Quick? <laughs> Unexpectedly? We all say, Rome wasn't built in... What does that mean? It wasn't built overnight. And, you know, it took a long time for Rome to, to be Rome. It wasn't built in one day, but guess what? It'll fall in one day. You know how long it takes for a nation to fall? <laughs> nation could be around for 200 years, 300 years. An empire could be around, boys, just like that. Here today, gone tomorrow. So it means that uh, when Rome falls, it's going to come quickly. Not literally one day, but quickly, verse 8. And then look what it says, at the middle of verse 8. And she will be utterly burned with fire. That's a city that's under siege, set afire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. This is God's doing. And uh, God's behind it all. What a shock. This is an empire that never thought it could be defeated. And here it is, defeated. And it's burning. Burning to the ground. London is burning. Did you ever hear a statement something like that? Well, this is Rome is burning. It's been devastated. Laid to waste by uh, uh, an invading army. And what happens is that God's behind it all. He's the one that takes nations against nations, and he's the one that judges nations. That's how he judges nations. Now, we come to the voice of lamentation. We have the voice of condemnation, separation, the voice of lamentation. And in this section, we're going to see the voice of three different groups. This is the reaction of Jerome's fall by three different groups. The kings, the merchants, and the sailors. First look at the re reaction to the king. Verse 9. And the kings of the earth, who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her, will weep and lament for her 
when they see the smoke of her burning. Now, why are they lamenting over Rome's demise? Why do you think the kings are lamenting over Rome's demise? Oh, yeah, because they were getting favors. They will no longer be living luxurious. Their power is taken away overnight. And so they're lamenting over this. Now, notice where they're standing in verse 10. They're seeing the smoke rise of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city of Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Now notice they're standing afar off. Now why are these kings, why aren't they their defending room? They're mourning room, but they're not defending room. Well, in fact, they're mourning not even mourning Rome. <laughs> They're mourning their own loss. <laughs> their own loss of power. Now these are kings that are spread all around the empire. And guess what? They see the smoke of Rome going up into the sky. And they realize that that signals her doom. In fact, uh, in ancient times when smoke went up into the sky, everyone knew what it meant. It meant a city was on fire and it was finished. Because when a city struck... When a fire struck a city, it just didn't strike a building or a block in those days. It wiped out the whole city. Remember the Chicago fire? A lantern fell over. Mrs. McCleary's barn, remember that? The whole city was destroyed. That was in 1871. Now, what we have here is the same thing. They know that Rome has been invaded, and when they see the smoke, that means the enemy has totally defeated the city, and it has put the city on fire. So they know that judgment has come upon the city. Now the next group to lament are the merchants, the business people. Look at verse 11. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her. Well, why are they weeping and mourning? Because no one buys their merchandise anymore. So what are they mourning about? They're losing profits. These are merchants who sold Rome goods. Uh, most of Rome's uh, goods were imported. These are the exporters that are mourning. They, they sell Rome goods, and Rome would import all these goods. And now these merchants realize Rome is finished. We've lost our business. That word for merchants, by the way, is emporoi. Emporoi, from which we get our word emporium. You know what an emporium is? Emporium is a, you know, like a place that has a whole bunch of different items. And uh, these are the people who are giving Rome all of her items. And they're mourning because they're going to lose business. Now look at verse 12. Here are, is a list of the things that they sell Rome. Verse 12. Merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones. Jewelry. You can just categorize this according to certain uh, titles. Gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls. Jewelry. Linen, purple, silk, and scarlet. High fashion, the clothing industry. Every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of the most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, decorative furniture. Look at verse 13. Cinnamon, incense, fragrant, and frankincense. Spices, cosmetics. 
wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, gourmet foods, horses and chariots, transportation. And then look at this last one. And bodies and souls of men. Slave trading. Sell of human flesh from one country to another. Merchant actually uh, merchandises human beings. So these guys were making what we would call today millions and millions of dollars, and they see it all going down the drain because Rome has fallen. Look what it says in verse 14. The fruit that your soul longed for, this means the, uh, the benefits, the results that your soul longed for, the luxury, has gone from you. And all the things which are rich and splendid have gone for you, from you, and you shall find them no more at all. It's all finished. Rome won't have it. The merchants won't be able to sell it. And then verse 15 says, The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance same thing it said about the king. For fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned in gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great riches have come to nothing. Exactly the same thing that was said by the king. It's all kaput, if you want to put it that way. Now, the voice of the sailors. You have the king's lament. You have the Merchants, and now the sailors. Right in the middle of verse 17. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, the sailors, and as many as trade on the sea. This is the stevedores, the pearl divers, all those that are involved in this, uh, this industry. Have become rich through the abundance of her... Oh, where am I? Excuse me, I read the wrong verse. Every shipmaster, all who travel by sea, verse 17, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? And the answer is, No one's like this great city. There's never been a city like this. What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and they cried out, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, the great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich. By her wealth, for one hour, she is made desolate. So, they're mourning too, but why are they mourning? Because all their business is gone. And they're throwing dust on their head. You saw that in the Middle East, how people throw dust on their head. And they go, oh! They're crying because their income is being cut off. Rome bought all their goods. Now remember where John is, he's on the island of Patmos. Where he sits, he can see the sea lanes, and he sees the ships coming and going, bringing in the imports, exporting and importing. And suddenly, in his vision, he sees that picture, and he sees the picture of all the sailors weeping because Rome is finished. So, we see that cry. Now, we see the voice of rejoicing. The voice of rejoicing. Look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Wait, the people on earth, guess what they're doing? Crying, but what are the people in heaven doing? Rejoicing. Rejoice over her, O heaven. And some translations say, You saints and holy apostles and prophets. These are all people who have been martyred by Rome for their faith. They are to rejoice. Why? Look at the end of verse 20. 
for God has avenged you on her. Now you know back in an earlier chapter, the saints who had been martyred were in heaven saying, How long, O oh God? How long? How long is it going to be? When are you going to vindicate us? And guess what? God says right now. In the vision it's seen. They see that Rome falls. Hadn't happened yet, but in the vision it happens. And then John sees when it happens, all of heaven breaks out in rejoicing. Then John speaks. And look what he says in verse 21. He gives the reason for rejoicing. In verse 21. He says this. Then a mighty angel took up a stone. This is in his vision. Like a great millstone, a grinder's stone. And he threw it into the sea, saying, Thus, with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. So, how's it going to happen? It's going to happen like this. He says, let me give you a little example. How fast is Rome going to fall and sink? And how fast is it going to happen? Let me show you. Millstone, plop, that's it. That quick. So, the saints are going to be vindicated. It's going to happen that quickly. And it says Rome will be found no more. Is the great Roman Empire still in existence? I don't think so. You wouldn't even know that it existed if you didn't have history books. So, uh, what is good news for the saints is bad news for Rome. What's good news for the oppressed is bad news for the oppressor. The oppressors are going to be uh, judged. And so we have this enacted prophecy here. And in verse 22, as Rome sinks out of sight, it says, And the sounds of the harpist and the musicians and the flautists and the trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. Not going to be any music in Rome anymore. All the music's going to stop. But guess who's singing? And guess where they're singing? Up in heaven. No, that music's going on up in heaven. But the music stops in Rome. In the New Jerusalem, they're singing, but not in Rome. And then look what else it says in middle verse 22. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. Notice how industry stops. And the sound of the millstone shall not be heard anymore. Notice how farming stops. The wheat will not be ground anymore. And the light of the lamp shall not shine in you anymore. Total blackout. Won't be anybody to light the lamps, the oil lamps. Today we'd say no electricity. That's what happens, isn't it? The blackout when there's a war. And then look at this. This is a very interesting one in verse 23. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. No one will be planning marriages and weddings anymore. There won't be any more royal weddings. All those weddings will be stopped. Now, very interesting, in chapter, uh, the next chapter, chapter 19, it tells us regarding Christ's bride, the bride has made herself ready for the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Guess what? Hey, we're going to have the wedding, but guess where the weddings have stopped? The Jews, Jerusalem, there'll be the weddings, but here in Rome, all weddings have stopped. If all weddings have stopped, there's no reproduction. It's just finished. The, the population basically is all and here it tells us why all this is happening right in the end of verse 23 because for your merchants were the great men of the earth that means they thought great of themselves it's all going to happen because of their arrogance 
Ah, we're great. Rome says, we're like a queen. You know, arrogance is going to be it's one of the reasons that this is going to happen. Verse 23. And then at the end of verse 23. And for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. Uh, this is their false religious system and their uh, idolatry. Everyone was sucked into that system. And that's why you're going to be judged. And then verse 24. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints. It's the third reason you're going to be judged. And of all who were slain on the earth, because you persecuted and you martyred God's people, Rome would be judged. Now, we know historically that Rome was judged, and Rome doesn't exist anymore. But it's obvious when you read a chapter like this, that this involves principles and applications that are far greater than anything uh, in Rome. It's not limited to Rome. Throughout history, we see nation after nation who followed a similar path like that. They became arrogant and said, we can't be defeated. We're the number one power in the world. We saw, we've seen nations say, hey, let's cut the corners. We'll make ourselves rich. Whole economic systems collapse. You know, capitalism is a great system as long as it has a moral backbone. Capitalism without morality is libertarianism. If people start cheating and looking out for number one, a whole system can collapse. See, this is a message to the seven churches at Rome. It's a message to all churches throughout every age. It includes our age. And Rome simply represents a government that operates on arrogance and pride, worldly systems. And people buy into it and they try to get wealth at the expense of others. They conquer other nations for their own benefit. Make widows of other men's wives. Compromises, compromising decisions, unethical means to make money in business, unethical deals in dark, smoke-filled rooms. Rooms that are out of sight, political decisions that no one makes. They think they're voting for certain things, but decisions are already made. Hey, this is a picture of every age in which we live. And boy, does it have a message for us. And those of us who call ourselves Christians, and those churches say we follow Christ, need to make sure that they don't buy into the system. It's seduced by the system. Follow the world's principles. Because if you do, when the world's judged, you'll go down with it. Now the next chapter <clears throat> talks about how heaven exalts, God raises up a new Jerusalem, and how believers are going to worship Christ and Him alone. We're going to cover that next week. We'll probably cover the first ten verses of Revelation 19 next week. And then at that point, we're going to take a break. And we're going to go for the Psalms in the summer series. And then we'll come back and we'll finish the last few uh, chapters of Revelation. Because the last few chapters of Revelation deal with totally with our future. They were as the other chapters dealt predominantly with Rome and historical uh, circumstance. So that's what we're doing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask that you teach us to trust you. 
Lord, so often we trust the wrong things and the wrong people and follow the wrong principles. It doesn't matter whether it's economics, politics. It doesn't matter what it is. So, Lord, we just want to trust you to meet our needs, physical needs, our spiritual needs, our financial needs. Help us to be people that are straight, letting our yea be yea and our nay be nay. Let us be people who seek your kingdom, trust you to meet the needs. And Lord, we have some people in our class that really need that you touch their bodies. We pray for Ray right now, who's recovering from this open heart surgery. Lord, restore him to perfect health. Make him stronger than he was even before. Thank you that, that this was found when it was found and that the healing process needs to be done. And we do also, Lord, lift up Wayne McGuffin. Lord, he may have turned the corner. You may have started the healing process in a really dynamic way. Just continue to allow him to get stronger and stronger each day and have more time with Joyce. Lord, we thank you for this class and the prayers of the people here and the faithfulness that's exhibited in this group. People who have been faithful to you with their finances, with their whole lives, some in their 90s, some in their 20s, each on a journey, each learning what it means to be faithful all the way to the end. Lord, may we learn this lesson in Christ's name. Amen.